Perhaps no mode of the freight universe has changed in the last several years more than moving freight by air. Through the pandemic, the lack of people moving across the globe and the surge in demand turned the air cargo industry on its head and then back on its side when people started traveling again and demand fell dramatically. With the added interest, air cargo companies and airports started procuring space for storage in office buildings and other facilities around major airports. Add to that a change in philosophy as shippers started to fly into secondary airports where shippers had more access to their freight and could move it easier via truck to warehouses in those larger hubs. The space is definitely changing as airports like LAX look to redefine air cargo hubs for decades to come. It's an industry that has taken off in recent years but seemingly has not yet found a place to land. And that's where we'll take a look at the changing world in air freight next on FreightWaves Presents. Welcome into Freightways Presents, I'm Bill Priestley. If you need it there tomorrow, there's likely only one form of transportation that will get it there on time. Air Cargo's Cullen Cart has long been the speed it can move from just about any point on the globe to any other point within 24 hours. With efficiency comes higher demand, and with higher demand comes a need for supportive infrastructure to meet that demand. The air cargo industry was almost called in as a backup when demand shot through the roof several years ago at the outset of the pandemic given Americans having stimulus money to spend. The demand was so high we might have even seen a paradigm shift in the way shippers use air cargo in a variety of different ways. Conversion kits shot up, access to smaller airports went up, and even the stuff we bought changed. So where does that leave air cargo when things tipped in the other direction and now demand finds itself getting up off the floor with the American economy? Joining us to set the stage is FreightWaves Air Cargo Editor Eric Coolish, joining us from Vancouver, Washington. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Um, since the 90s, uh, we, we've had probably more change in this industry than any other. What has kind of stood out to you over the course of the last, say, several years in terms of how this industry has changed? Well, you know, the, the industry's changed in a lot of ways. The, the pandemic kind of redefined things um, so much with the upsurge in demand and and now you're seeing the industry trying to kind of recover recover to a more normalized mode. I think the biggest thing that's structurally impacting the industry is the growth in e-commerce shipments. Um, that is, you know, the driver behind growth for the next two decades as e-commerce sales explode. And even though e-commerce has a percentage of uh, e-commerce growth has, has fallen back since the we were all stuck at home during the pandemic. It's still growing at a much higher pace than general air cargo. And the express carriers are, you know, still investing in aircraft. And these e-commerce networks are developing around the world where they need um, small, medium, and even large freighters to, to move things, you know, uh, next day and overnight uh, to support the, the shipments. How do you think the air cargo universe has responded to that, knowing that, I mean, this is obviously a different animal altogether than what it's been used to for the, basically since its inception? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 changed the dynamic. You've got more uh, regional carriers coming in to act as contractors for the express, uh, the big express carriers. They don't want to have all the assets uh, on their balance sheet themselves, so they get these contractors that fly on their behalf. And so, you know, you're flying shuttle routes, uh, short and medium haul routes with 
uh, Boeing 737-800 freighters and, and other 737s and the new Airbus A321. And these are mostly converted aircraft that come off of the uh, come out of the passenger sector. They're used and it's a lot cheaper than trying to buy a production freighter straight from the factory. So that's where the kind of the activity is of buying and converting freighters. And that's been red hot in the last three years. We still got a huge order book, but some of the new orders are cooling down because the air cargo market is is slowing down a lot, uh, you know, as we have this go through this normalization phase. You had right where I was going to go here. Obviously, conversion kits, we've talked about this. They, they shot up tremendously. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just it kind of points to exactly how versatile people want to be at this particular point. Do you think that's going to continue? Um, obviously, it's going to cool down a little bit here as the economy can, tends to you know, warm, warm up again. We hope to see that happen perhaps next year. But do you see that be still being a trend moving forward in the air cargo industry to buy freighters being bought, being converted, or rather, I should say planes being bought, being converted to freighters and then moving in that industry? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if the, you know, if you're taking a long-term approach, the air cargo market's growing at a healthy rate, um, notwithstanding some geopolitical uh, problems. And and so, as I said, e-commerce, the two things that will drive more investment in and continuing investment in either production freighters or converted aircraft is e-commerce, but also replacement aircraft. You have a lot of older aircraft, older 747, 400s, um, older Airbus aircraft and just these aircraft that are less efficient that were brought, to, you know, were probably going to be retired, but were kept in service or brought out of the desert to fly during the pandemic. So there's kind of this, a lot of these planes are starting to be retired more quickly and there's going to be a need to, to fill that, replace that capacity. And, um, you know, just getting back to one of the other things you alluded to earlier and, and maybe we'll get into is the you know, during the pandemic, there was this accelerated interest in in using uh, secondary airports. Um, you know, to get back, get past some of the congestion that we saw at the the main passenger gateways. And so, if you had charter or freighter operations and wanted kind of priority service and not get caught up in delays, you know, as a logistics company that chartered freighters, you might look to some of these smaller airports that could service you. It's like, it's like you read my notes. You're going right where I, where I wanted to go here as well. Um, so uh, one of the things that I think that we've kind of all talked about when we talk about air cargo is versatility, though that number, that, that, that term really hasn't been used that much. But when you talk about conversion kits, you talk about going to secondary markets, all of a sudden more options are available for you. Is, is that kind of, do you think, where we're headed here just as, as airlines freight uh, airlines as well as uh, shippers looking for versatility and what they can get from their air cargo carriers? Yeah, I mean, um, flexibility and versatility is key. Um, I mean, even though demand is down and there's a lot of, you know, shippers and logistics companies going back to putting their freight on, you know, passenger airlines or in the bellies of passenger aircraft, um, because it's a little cheaper and now there's that uh, capacity available, you still see interest in, in freighters or, you know, chartering freighters or using a partial freighter because, you know, the freighter gives you that, you know, it's, you mentioned speed is, is of the essence. But, you know, as we learned during the uh, disruptions of the pandemic, reliability is key and a, and a key takeaway for shippers is that they still want that reliability. So, Having a freighter that goes on to certain routes isn't going to be changed because uh, 
the airline's passenger demand changed or is going to a cargo market rather than a leisure market might um, incline you to use a freighter. So, you know, that gives you flexibility. And some of the freighter operators are trying to be flexible by in their leasing options and having, um, you know, depending on how much, how many planes they buy and acquire for conversion, they have some flexibility in their capital expenditure plans to to slow or increase that pace, um, you know, to keep up uh, or to be aligned with demand. Last question here for you. Uh, in terms of uh, kind of going forward, do you see a player in here that's kind of dominating uh, how things are going to be set up, whether it's an Amazon that's just trying to get, obviously trying to do very well in air cargo, or is it perhaps someone like an Airbus or like a Boeing? Are they kind of setting the stage for how things are going to play out? I mean, it's a very dynamic market. It's hard to say that anybody's dominating, but obviously trendsetters are, are big airlines like Amazon and uh, FedEx, UPS, DHL. But, you know, we'll have to see. There's a lot of evolving uh, sectors in the market. We have to see how the new um, sustainable aviation fuels, new hydrogen and other, uh, you know, propulsion uh, for aircraft as we try to become a more sustainable industry, how those uh, technologies evolve and how they're brought into air cargo. And so there are startups and other companies that will, um, you know, become more prominent uh, as we go on. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here and setting the stage. And obviously, we'll look to your content on FreightWaves.com for everything in the air air cargo industry. Great. Thanks so much, Bill. All right. Well, we've looked at a look at the past. Let's take a look at the future where it's possibly ended here. Joining us now, Mike Weber, founder of Weber Air Cargo in Austin, Texas, and also Mark Schlossberg, the executive vice president of Unique Logistics uh, International as well. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, Mark, let me, uh, excuse me, Mike, let me start with you. Just in terms of what we're seeing now in the industry, what is most impressive to you at this particular point? Yeah, and may I say, it's always a pleasure to listen to Eric. Uh, I consider him one of the smarter guys in the industry. And uh, as he was speaking, I couldn't help but think of, you know, there's nothing I disagree with him about. There are areas of contrast, though, and and maybe that's uh, you know, what you intend to, uh, to speak to. But, uh, you know, when Eric was talking about freighters and versatility, and certainly you could say the same thing about trucks as well, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the key contrasts with what I do, which is airport planning. You know, you can move an aircraft around, you can move trucks around, you know, to where the demand moves. But when you do airport planning, you try to ignore temporary, you know, peaks and valleys as much as possible, because bear in mind, you're often replacing facilities that may be 50 to 70 years old. And you think the next generation of them are going to last at least as long. And so really, you know, the biggest change that I'm seeing right now is after what had been a lull in North America, at least in terms of air cargo facilities development on airport between 2000 and 2015, there's been a lot more development of on-airport facilities, you know, that was sparked by Amazon and some of them in alternative airports, as you were alluding to earlier, but also some of the major legacy gateways like LAX and JFK, O'Hare and Miami, you know, those airports are uh, starting to make improvements for the next generation of demand. And, uh, they're not necessarily as innovative as some may believe. It's just that, uh, we're doing things on airports that, may have been done off airport, but uh, why don't I cut myself off there and uh, I'll let you speak to your other guests and I'll wait for some questions. Okay, uh, Mark, just looting, just jumping off of that particular point there, obviously brought up LAX and the fact that uh, it's it's obviously put itself out there with an opportunity to try and redo. Uh, they, they've 
the city of Los Angeles is nothing short of usually breathtaking when it comes to doing something uh, on an overhaul, as you can see with Staples Center and some of the other things you just saw there as well. When you look at LAX and what they could possibly do as a hub, uh, what 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 comes to mind is is obviously they're going to try and uh, I would think they were going to try and set the bar relatively high. Well, um, hi Bill, thank you very much for having me on. Um, when I was listening to Eric a little bit, I think that one of the things before I begin and, and jump into LAX, I think we're still coming out of the pandemic. Supply and demand haven't normalized yet, and I think we'll probably see that more going into next year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at the first half of twenty three. We're at the lowest point since 2016 in terms of demand. Um, I think that retail is still coming back from the overhang inventory in 22. Um, and I think we'll start to see a normalized year next year. And so we'll start to see how those the, the demand uh, plays out into 24. Um, as far as LAX, I know that they've forwarded a modernization strategy. They've um, put together, I guess, uh, some teams to design what they're going to do with the uh, two cargo areas. Um, I, I, when I look at what our, our customer base is doing in terms of retail, um, in terms of fashion apparel, again, it's that shift to e-commerce, uh, you know, and the customer experience where people want things immediately. They're used to from the pandemic. They order it online. They want to know when it's going to arrive. And so we're seeing the throughput of cargo a lot faster. Um, they want to drop it into U.S. Postal or into FedEx on arrival, the sort systems. That Maybe that's something LAX can look at. Um, but other than that, we're seeing it going to, we're seeing more splits going into multiple airports where it's smaller batches going into 10 different airports, almost like the Zara model, mm-hmm. so that it's able to distribute more widely around the U.S., Mike, let's go to the LAX question for you. I know we've got a, a picture of LAX uh, in terms of kind of what it looks like at this particular point, but uh, um, that that's uh, taken from our sonar uh, uh, application in terms of just a, a sky view there. What do you think they could possibly be doing as in, as you look at airport planning and what they what they're up to? Well, full disclosure, they're a client of mine, so okay, uh, I, I'm, I'm familiar with that airfield and. Uh, I think one thing I'd just like to say, though, off the, the top is that uh, in terms of trying to set the bar high, uh, you know, they're not doing anything gratuitous to, you know, shock and awe anybody. I, I times I feel like I've outlived my uh, my era and that we specifically don't want to be disruptors. We want to be as undisruptive as possible. And uh, and so with regards to LAX, um, you know, as I said earlier, some of these facilities that are being replaced are decades old and you're not going to get new land. I mean, that's one of the things that is, is so compelling about yeah, the visual you just showed. Not, there's not much stuff out there. You can, if you look at that map, there's not much room to grow right. at all. So the only thing you really can do is try to uh, optimize the use of the available land. And in some cases, obviously that's going to be a matter of replacement of cargo facilities uh, beginning with Century Boulevard, which is principally the uh, the belly cargo operations. And so, you know, the first phase of redevelopment there is going to include double-decker facilities, which have not been developed on airport in the U.S. before. And so, you know, when we talk about LAX being the most ambitious redevelopment of air cargo facilities in the history of North America, that's not hyperbole. We're not shooting footage of ourselves in helicopters over the bay, you know, to uh, to impress anybody. It's just a fact. This is an airport with 
two and a half million annual tons of of cargo, which you know, it and 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 uh, Chicago, Heron, Miami really are the big three in that, and then New York, JFK, a little bit behind. We're finally at this point with airports that were laid out a hundred years ago. Whereas I was saying, we're not going to get any more land, so we have to do better with what we have. And we're basically setting it up for the next generation. And so the only way to optimize, you know, land in certain constrained situations is to go vertical. And it has been interesting looking at some of the observations by other people in the industry who, you know, have thrown around, well, this is an innovation that's never been tried before. And they try to cast aspersions on it. And, um, you know, we're dealing with known commodities as much as possible. We're researching it to death, which I know at times can make people frustrated about the public sector. But again, we're not moving aircraft and trucks around. We're building physical facilities and infrastructure that'll be around in 50 to 70 years. And so you've got to get it right the first time. And so uh, I would just say, again, we're we're not posing as disruptors. We're going to try to be as undisruptive as possible while implementing the most ambitious cargo redevelopment project in the history of North America. Yeah, and it's, it's certainly, as, as you say, the, the, the need is certainly there. Certainly, at, uh, I remember a report at uh, the airport in Toronto, uh, Ontario, Canada. They were looking at using uh, office buildings to try and sort out some, get some more space there because, because again, land not there as a, as a primary uses of what they could possibly do there. Um, Mark, as we go back, uh, we're talking about a little bit about the, the secondary airports and their utilization and how they're, they're going to come into play. Uh, we had a guest on uh, several months ago noting that they're gonna, these, these airports are going to play a significant role, and indeed they are definitely starting to do that. What's going to be the biggest impact that they're going to have outside of the L.A.s, the Chicago's, the Miami's of the world? Well, I think that, the, the, it's, uh, I guess, back up a little bit. I mean, LAX and JFK, Chicago, um, their big advantage is the passenger aircraft that fly in, which allows the carriers to scale their operations and utilize belly and freighter capacity in both of them. When you start going with the secondary airports, they, they, they're going to be challenged because they're not going to have the passenger capacity going in um, to the same degree. So they're not going to have the belly loads. If we're able to, do, to convince carriers to go into, say, a Pittsburgh, which is one that I've done a lot with, um, you know, if we, got, we had Cutter going in there at one point. We had Cathay going in there at one point. Um, it's challenging to keep them in there because they don't have the passenger demand going in. So I think that that's where we, we struggle to try to keep them engaged in those marketplaces. But at the same time, the advantage is that from wheels down to cargo availability, we're looking at, at hours. Um, our costs uh, for and the turn uh, the turn time on the aircraft is minimal. The fueling costs, the availability of the cargo, the trucking, um, the terminal fees, um, the the flexibility of the local environment for us to get things moving. You know, I think one of the challenges we have with a lot of the major gateways now is it's dominated by one or two of the terminal operators. And if you run into storage, you're, you're paying through the notes. Um, and so I think the advantage is when, we, when you look at it from a, an end user is the flexibility in the secondary markets, the ability to expedite cargo faster um, and you pay less for it. The problem is getting the carriers to operate there, and that's where the big gateways have the huge advantage. 
Mike, as you look at it uh, in terms of these secondary markets, there was the great points there from, from Mark there as well. Um, what do you see as how they could possibly squeeze in? Again, you've got to say, still have the passenger load to, to make this a financially viable option. Um, but at the same time, you don't have necessarily the problems of like having your own airport, if you will, uh, to just fly things in and, and uh, almost have a, a private access. Yeah, I agree with what Mark was just saying. I appreciate those remarks. They're very well well observed. Uh, I would add, though, I mean, in terms of the alternative airports, and, and I think this, in a way, it underscores what Mark was just saying, the integrators have been doing that for years. I mean, there's a there are good reasons why UPS put its Southern California regional hub at Ontario and their Midwestern hub at Rockford instead of O'Hare. And, you know, FedEx mm-hmm. has a central hub at Alliance instead of at DFW. I, I could continue, but I think you get the point. But the integrators have their own truck fleets, their own aircraft, they're doing their own handling typically. And so they're able to move those operations intact without having the dependence on a couple hundred common carrier trucking companies and uh, third-party handlers. And so this alternative airport strategy is is not necessarily new. I would say to a, a, a substantial degree, you could see it in even Amazon in recent years. You know, Amazon has its South Central Hub is also at Alliance in Fort Worth rather than at DFW and a uh, big operation in San Bernardino. Um, actually, Lehigh Valley, you know, which is the Allentown uh, area instead of Philadelphia. And so, you know, for these, you know, huge self-contained operations where, you know, they can either take their own handling or they can demand that a handler go there, you know, for a big account. Um, alternative airports have been a fact of life for decades. What did happen during the pandemic was obviously, you know, once, once passengers stopped flying, there was a lot less of the belly cargo capacity that Mark was just speaking of. And so that incentive to really fixate around the, the main legacy gateways wasn't quite as great. But also, there were real issues that are probably you know, worthy of another 30 minute call, but, uh, you know, handling another, you know, services that are critical for freighter operations, labor, you know, (laughs) supply, all sorts of issues that typically, you know, would be taken care of and spread out among the passenger carriers were suddenly not, uh, not nearly as easily as dressed. And and, and so there were, you know, additional migrations to alternatives. I know, you know, again, Rockford, you know, picked up some additional freighters over there. There have been other cases, you know, uh, Greenville Spartanburg uh, Airport, Mm -hmm. where you have key accounts like BMW, you know, where just one or two accounts are big enough to, to demand a freighter under themselves. And so those are the type of scenarios where you can see it. But unfortunately, I mean, ever since I got in the industry 30 years ago or so, you know, there's always been a lot of hype around alternative airports. And, and a lot of it is very poorly understood. Uh, we always go back to the example of Miami International Airport, which when I first entered this industry, you know, people were all saying, Boy, you know, the congestion and, and, and other issues, people just can't wait to get out of Miami. And 30 something years later, they still haven't left. So they're not going anywhere. There's yeah. a lot of really compelling uh, factors beyond the obvious that tend to keep operators at the major gateways. And uh, again, you look at versatility, you know, if you have one or two international freighters a week, what happens when one of them takes a mechanical? You know, if your operation is based at O'Hare or LAX, well, you probably got another flight going to that destination in the next hour, so it'll take care of itself. Yeah. 
Well, I wish we could add an, another 10 minutes to our conversation. Unfortunately, we've got to wrap it up here shortly. So let me just leave you guys with these two questions, real, or at least one question for both of you real quick. What do you think is something in air cargo that we that is not mainstream right now that you think is going to be mainstream, say, for instance, in about five years? Mark, let me start with you. Probably. Well, the two things that come to mind. First is the e-commerce players. Um, just simply because of the explosion of e-commerce right now. What we saw in, in the last six to nine months was a couple of players based out of mainland China that kept that market afloat. Um, the, the amount of volume that they were pumping and, and dumping into the U.S. postal network using three-to-one de minimis, they more or less kept the air freight rates from going below pre-pandemic, whereas every other market in the Indian sub-Southeast Asia had dropped below pre-pandemic levels. Um, the other thing is going to be SAF. Um, mm-hmm. Customers searching for it. You have um, various mandates from climate change that that's going to become a, a major factor in how we price and how we run our air cargo. Mike, what do you think five years from now? Again, compliments to Mark. I, I had both of those in mind, so I'll pivot to uh, cargo community systems would be one of them, which is probably one of those features that laymen think already exists to a, to a greater degree than it does. But, uh, you know, these are the uh, integrated systems intended to uh, better coordinate um, airlines, cargo handlers, freight porters, trucking companies, and regulators uh, into more of a seamless platform uh, for communications and and planning purposes, a lot of the truck congestion that currently happens at airports, including ones we've been talking about, um, really uh, could be minimized, you know, through such a platform. You also need a physical element to it, like truck queuing yards. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we need far better uh, cargo community systems coordination between those elements and it's already happening in places like Amsterdam and Brussels. Uh, it's not happened to nearly the degree you would think that it should at U.S. airports. It's even happening more in seaports, I believe, than it is at airports. So uh, I think that's something that uh, is improving in leaps and bounds, but we still have a long ways to go. Well, Mike Weber and Mark Schlossberg, thanks so much for joining us here on this edition of Furious Presents. Obviously, this is a complicated industry, and who knows where it could be in five years as well. But uh, hopefully, we'll look to you for some insight as uh, things continue to change in the air car- in the air cargo industry. Thank you. Thank my you pleasure. Both. All right. From Chattanooga, from LAX to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and anywhere you can set a plane down, the air cargo industry seems to be ready to go anywhere to get the job done. But how is that going to look? What the infra- what infrastructure will be required? How much time do we have to figure it out? Clearly, we seem to be flying through a bit of turbulence in terms of finding stability in the industry. Will we find that stability? It's probably too soon to tell, but as long as people still need something delivered tomorrow, anything in air cargo is still possible. That's it for this edition of Freight Waves Presents. I'm Bill Priestley. We'll see you next time.